Welcome to the UN and Organized Crime podcast series from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. As multilateralism itself comes under intense pressure and as transnational organized crime continues to succeed, expand and diversify, we'll analyze the UN responses to the issue with some of the world's leading experts as we try to unpack diplomatic discussions, policy developments and program implementation. I'm Ian Tennant. And I'm Summer Walker. Today, Ian and I will be discussing the ongoing treaty negotiations at the UN to elaborate a cybercrime treaty. The committee has now held its second substantive meeting, and it was the first where they actually started to talk about details of what might be in the treaty. Today, we'll take stock of where the process is, the perspectives expressed, and the implications for the way forward. So Ian, I just wanted to start with asking you the differences between the first session and the second session. So the first session was highly political and combative, as well as it exposed differences in some core positions. How did this second session compare with the first? What was expected? What didn't you expect? And how do you feel now that that meeting has wrapped up? Thanks, Summer. And I think there were kind of two major areas of difference between the second session and the first session. And you mentioned the politics, and I think this was the most obvious difference. The first session took place just after the invasion of Ukraine had started and was you know, dominated by lots of highly political statements. And even though the situation hasn't really changed geopolitically, it was somewhat toned down in the, in the discussions in the room in the, the two weeks meeting that was held at the end of May, beginning of June. There were some political statements, but the chair of the process, who's the the Algerian ambassador in Vienna, was quite clear in directing delegates towards technical details of what should be in the treaty. And largely, delegates stuck to that. And there was a lot of detailed discussion on, you know, substantive legal and technical issues around what should or shouldn't be in, in, in the treaty. So I think that was the first major difference. I think the second major difference was exactly on the substance. And as delegates from, uh, from the member states got into those details on the, on the areas that were discussed under the second session, which was criminalization provisions, uh, procedural measures, um, and law enforcement, and the general provisions of the treaty, some interesting nuances, I think, emerged in comparison to the first session. Whereas in in the first session, the differences between the two kind of two broad camps of those looking for a Council of Europe Budapest convention style treaty with quite narrow scope versus those following the the Russian and Chinese model of quite a broad treaty were quite clear. In the second session, because of the details that we went into, we actually saw that there seemed to be more willingness amongst more member states to talk about some of those what they call cyber-enabled crimes that would that would not be a kind of classic cyber-dependent crime, such as child sexual exploitation, which seemed to be gaining momentum as an issue that should be included. And we also saw that in terms of sharing evidence and electronic evidence, more member states seem to be willing to talk about quite a wide range of crime types, which I don't think we were necessarily expecting. So when you look at the two, those two major differences on politics and on the nuances of 
substance, the emerging issues that were coming out of the discussions. I feel like there was more positive mood in the room and expressed by delegates about how the negotiations were going and that there was, you know, space for discussion and perhaps compromise on certain issues. That's a that's a very interesting position that states have now found themselves in as they move into the next negotiating session. I guess we should also note that these sessions that are happening sort of on the bookends of summer in June and in August and September, those will be the sessions that lead to the first draft of the treaty. So that's why these are such critical meetings to follow. Following these meetings, there was also an intercessional that looked ahead to the next session. So issues such as technical capacity building, international cooperation. And this was an intercessional that had a mix of civil society voices, private sector and governments attending and participating. And so I was just wondering what you found were the interesting points from your perspective and how you think that meeting compared to the first session. I think, you know, it was quite challenging, I think, for the delegates and the stakeholders involved to move straight from two weeks of um, these quite technical discussions into two more days uh, directly afterwards, looking ahead to the next session. But on the positive side, there's plenty of time now for delegates and stakeholders to digest what was discussed in this intersessional meeting. And put them into the positions that will be submitted to the chair and will form the basis of the discussions at the end of August. And as you say, Summer, we expect the first draft to be presented by the end of the year after the second session, now that all the proposed chapter revisions will have been discussed in these two meetings at the beginning and the end of the summer. I thought that the discussion on international cooperation was especially rich in the intersessional meeting. International cooperation, you know, is the core of this treaty, potentially. At least that's what the objectives stated by a lot of member states are, and the objective of lots of the instruments upon which these negotiations are based, including the Council of Europe Cybercrime Convention, the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime, and the UN Convention Against Corruption. And I think when it comes to international cooperation, there seem to be amongst the experts who were speaking and amongst the delegates who were responding as well, a recognition for increased capabilities in terms of capacity building, but also a recognition that a lot of work needs to be done in terms of building trust and creating those networks amongst law enforcement, judicial authorities, and other stakeholders as they try and build a new framework for international cooperation. I think, you know, some of those key issues that were highlighted in when we were discussing criminalization, such as human rights and data privacy, what to do when exchanging data came through very clearly, especially from the private sector representatives and human rights NGOs who are participating in the meeting. There is a strong sense from the private sector that they don't want to be coerced into sharing data with their own or with other jurisdictions that might compromise privacy and citizens' rights. And this came through not only, you know, from the private sector, but also from the civil society, including civil society who have experience either as former law enforcement or cooperating with 
law enforcement that there are big risks and human rights risks attached to developing international cooperation provisions. I think the discussion on capacity building and technical assistance, which was something that provides a a note of potential consensus in the discussions, there's quite a widespread recognition that capacity building on cybercrime issues is part of the broader problems we're seeing in terms of the digital divide. So there were some quite interesting presentations, including from the UNODC and other international organizations in terms of how capacity building could be enhanced through such treaty and what kind of programs they're having at the moment. But at the same time, there was also a sense from the other interventions that, you know, human rights risks and other safeguards need to be put in place. And I think as we look ahead to the the next session, it's the issue of multilateral coordination will also come through as well. It's not quite clear at the moment how this treaty will be kind of serviced as a as an international instrument, you know, where the secretariat will be, who will do the capacity building, you know, who will act as focal points, etc. And so given the wide range of regional instruments that we have, the uh, UN instruments and organized crime, it will be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, I think I think you have two two very interesting points here. I think when when they were talking about technical capacity building, you could really see different people speaking, thinking about how they fit into the implementation of this. So it started to kind of raise the question of, so what do member states want the UN agencies to do specifically? And that will be really important for them to think about now rather than later. I think it's also quite interesting. You brought up questions for the private sector. I think you were a panelist and received many questions too. And I think the intercessionals were a really good opportunity to bring civil society, private sector, and the governments together. I think we heard a lot of really genuine questions and interest from governments asking panelists and people their their perspectives. So I think that was a really helpful thing to see take place. But you were on the panel on the second day. You spoke on a review mechanism. You are GI's resident expert on the UNTOC review mechanism. And so I just wanted to have you explain a little bit why you think this issue is so important for the negotiation. Sure. First, I think I just want to agree with you as well that the atmosphere and the kind of exchanges that are taking place through this discussion are very positive in terms of multi-sectoral engagement. And yeah, as you say, I think the questions and the back and forth that are taking place between member states and quite a diverse group of member states is very positive and in in some ways, it's becoming a quite an interesting hub of exchange between different sectors and different countries on cybercrime that will, you know, hopefully be taken forward, whatever the, the outcome of this negotiation. And that feeds directly into the presentation that I made with my colleagues from the Alliance of NGOs on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice on what a review mechanism could look like for this convention. I mean, here in Vienna, we already have two major review mechanisms for organized crime and corruption treaties, the UNTOC and the UNCAC. The UNCAC's been going on longer. The UNTOC has just recently started. We're quite engaged, especially on the UNTOC review mechanism and facilitating civil society engagement in that. And the reason we think that's so important and will be important for this treaty is that civil society 
And in this case, we're talking quite a broad cross-section of society, you know, whether that's private sector, NGOs, academia, researchers, will bring a very rich and diverse range of experiences and data and evidence on what the crimes covered under this treaty, what impacts they're having. One of the drawbacks, as we see it, of the current range of review mechanisms we have on organized crime is that they're very legalistic in focus. They're very long and quite bureaucratic and very closed in terms of outside access and in terms of what information is, you know, is, is put out there into the public domain, where member states essentially have to approve their report or the observations that are found on them. So I think this treaty is an opportunity to maybe think more differently and think about how we can use the expertise that's building through this community that's engaging on this on these treaty negotiations into something that can bring the latest data and expertise that can and show what impact this potential instrument might be having on the criminal markets involved and given the nature of cyber crimes, the fast moving, dependent on technology, always moving forward with innovation, there's a need to be quite flexible and not go forward with the model that we've had before. So for example, with the UNTOC review mechanism, we're looking at at least 11 years before completion, by which time lots will have changed. In the Global Initiative, we put forward some potential proposals that could be taken forward by member states, we hope, in the, in the discussions. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks, everyone, for joining. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode with more perspectives and insights into this process. Mm-hmm.